Hey everybody, this is Brent Watkinson with Everyday Artist. My guest is Anita Kuntz. Kuntz is spelled K-U-N-Z. She is living in Toronto, Canada, and during certain times in her life, she has split her living quarters with the United States and England. Her website is anitakuntz.com, and as always, you can see her work on my website at brentwatkinson.com, Plus, I'll put a link to her website, and you can see many, many more of her images at her website. I can start by telling you that Anita has many awards over her long career, but I'm also compelled to explain the depth and breadth of these awards. She has an abundance of accolades and citations that are from her peers, major educational institutions, and the people of her home country of Canada. Any single award I tell you about is far and above what most of us will ever achieve. And as I said, she has many of such awards. Let me share some of these with you now. From the Museum of American Illustration in New York City, she has received the Hamilton King Award, which is basically a Lifetime Achievement Award. She was inducted into the Royal Canadian Academy of the Arts in Canada in 2007. She was named one of the 50 most influential women in Canada by the National Post newspaper. She achieved another Lifetime Achievement Award from the Advertising and Design Club of Canada. She has an honorary doctorate degree from the Ontario College of Art and Design she has an honorary doctorate degree from the Massachusetts College of Art and Design. She is a recipient of the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal of Honor. She has another Lifetime Achievement Award from Applied Arts Magazine. And she was inducted into the Hall of Fame Museum of American Illustration in New York City, which most of us illustrators know as the Society of Illustrators in New York. Last and certainly not least is the fact that Anita was appointed Office of the Order of Canada, which is Canada's highest civilian honor in 2010. This is essentially what some people would say is akin to being a knight in England. To say that Anita's artwork is unique would be a gross understatement in my opinion. Some of her artwork will make you uncomfortable. Some of her artwork will make you laugh. Some of her artwork will make you ponder prevailing questions of the day. But all of her artwork will make you think. She is kind and soft-spoken, but I warn you, if you begin an argument in which she is knowledgeable and passionate, you better bring your A-game and prepare yourself to match wits with a formidable opponent. Anita Kuntz. Let's get into it. Anita, one thing that I want to compliment you on, and I think this is the, the greatest compliment an artist can get, and it sometimes seems like I'm backing into it, but I would say, especially out there to the younger people that are trying to get into this industry, 
or any kind of picture making, and that is your images are not what I would call technique driven. They are idea driven. In other words, you don't let the technique get in front of the idea. What do you think of that observation? Well, I mean, uh, yeah, definitely. To me, the idea is always the most important part. I mean, the you know the reason I became an illustrator in the first place was because my uncle was an illustrator, and his motto was art for education. So I thought it was incredible that you know art didn't necessarily just have to be something that you hung up on the wall and was decorative, but it could also perform some kind of function in society. And I loved that he was, he illustrated, uh, you know, at that time, film strips and all the textbooks that we had in school. And, um, and, and I just loved the idea that he brought so much of himself and his ideas into it. And so for me, I, I just think that no matter what field you're you go into whether it's design or fine art or illustration or or typography or anything it just seems to me that if you're you know it's all about the idea and it's all about how you think and i think that you can you know if you're an intelligent artist and if you strive to be an intelligent artist you can easily uh you know deal with the challenges that inevitably happen so I, I mean, that's that's a compliment. Thank you, Brent. I mean, that's certainly what I've what I've always uh, strive for. I think there's a lot of people that look at art, illustration, whatever, from the other side. Uh, a lot of times, I think people look at the decorative quality or the pretty quality, and they forget the idea, or they don't need an idea or want an idea. But I think a really good, long-lasting piece of work has both. And you and I have a common friend, a man by the name of Baron Story. Oh, yeah. And of course, his teacher. And people have heard me tell this story before, but hopefully it's worth repeating. Baron Story's teacher was Robert Weaver. Wow. Yep. And we, you and I have both heard uh, Baron talk about Robert uh, with great accolades. And I love the story that he told. And he put it in modern terms. He was talking to a group of younger people and he said, Robert Weaver always wanted a high resolution idea that was executed in a low res finish because he didn't want the pretty picture to get in the way of the idea. And like you said, it can serve society and it can, it can have a function in our intellectual society. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I mean, I remember uh, when, when I was younger, you know, I mean, I went to art school and then I I struggled a bit. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I was doing really, really cutesy work and really pretty work. And then I, I sort of had this epiphany and, and I I discovered the work of some of the English artists like uh, Ralph Steadman and Sue Coe, and they weren't doing pretty work. And I thought, if you're tackling hardcore subject material, why would you want to make a pretty image? Um, you know, like it, it almost follows that if it's something to do with anything violent or unpleasant or something, like you don't want to make a pretty picture. Now, having said that, 
I'm the biggest fan of like gorgeously rendered work. I mean, I'm, I, I'm marvel at how, you know, amazing some people's techniques are. And I think that's the one thing that I've always struggled with the most is I, 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 you know, I sort of, I don't consider myself to be a great painter. I think I'm, I think I'm a better drawer and, you know, and then a color filler in her, (laughs) but I never, I never considered myself to be a great painter. So I, you know, I mean, I just, I really, really admire great technique too. So you and I have been in a teaching situation together off and on for over 20 years. Sorry to throw that number out there. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was five when we started. Yes. Yes. Uh, The truth is the truth, I guess, when, and numbers don't lie. I remember telling this group of young students before your demonstrations, and you always were nice enough to share your technique. And I would tell these people, I said, I am going to give Anita the greatest compliment I can because I'm going to tell you as a student, you will be completely underwhelmed by her technique because she doesn't do anything sneaky or bizarre or or secret. She just has this great idea, has a great drawing, and paints it. And it's that simple. And then we would have the conversation about your work being idea-driven. And they, they got it. They totally understood. And I think they looked at your work in a different way. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, thank you. Um, I, I mean, I think that even, I mean, when young artists start, I mean, th- that's, you know, when they go out and they try to get work. And I mean, that really is, I think, what art directors and people who, you know, who buy the work or commission the work, I think that's what they're looking for. They're looking to see how you think. And they're looking to see that you are, you know, that you're a, an you know, relatively intelligent person and that you're able to, you know, to, to take an idea or take the idea in the story or whatever and, and do something with it and that you have a cohesive style. And I'm, I'm even finding in the fine art world, I mean, uh, I'm, cause I'm doing a lot more fine art these days, but I even find that they, they want an idea or a story behind the work. It's not, I mean, you really have to be able to discuss why you've done the work. I think galleries want to be able to talk about why you did what you did with your work to potential collectors. So it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it has to do with illustration again with uh, fine art, you know, I mean, no matter what, what area you're in, I think you have to be sort of intelligent about what you're doing. I mean, if, if only, I mean, I'm still, I'm still doing illustration work and, and I find that sometimes you know, these days it's more difficult than it was when I started. And when I started, I mean, art directors would ask for one or two sketches. Now they ask for, you know, they sort of ask for as many as 20. And there's a lot of input by editors. That does not make sense. <laughs> that, I know. That number of, of sketches. I don't know how that happened. But anyway, but I mean, even if you, so, so I think you have to be really cognizant of what your idea is and you have to be able to articulate what your idea is. So, you know, there's so many reasons why you have to, you know, you have to be sort of a thinking artist these days. While we're on this idea, Jag, that we're on right now, which is never a bad idea, I had the good fortune to have a few conversations with someone from Pixar not long ago. 
and I asked the question, well, how do you, what do you look for when you hire someone? And he had the most wonderful answer. I, I will never forget this conversation as long as I live. He confessed to me that most of the people, not all, most of the people that apply at Pixar can outdraw and outpaint many of the people there. And of course, we all know that Pixar people can draw better than maybe anybody in the world and they can all paint. They're, they're very accomplished drawers and what they do. And he said, that's, that's not the issue. They can all draw and paint. He said, we just hired a guy not long ago that sent us an animation reel done with stick figures on post-it notes because it was all about the idea. And the guy was so smart that he stripped any type of drawing or painting flash and ability, took it all away and just said, here are my ideas. And they hired the guy completely based on the way you said it, Anita, the way you think and the way you see and the way you interpret the world around you. And I think that's an astounding story and a great lesson, especially for young people. Yeah, that, that's a that's a really great story. Um, and, you know, I mean, as I as I sort of move through my career, I also see that there are a lot of amazing new areas that weren't there before. I mean, the pro, the, like there's so many amazing graphic novels being made. And this was something that really wasn't being done a lot when I was a younger artist. And, you know, and, and those are completely idea driven. I mean, they're, they're personal and they're authentic and they're just amazing storytelling. So, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, even for people who are not going to go into the illustration field or the fine art field or whatever, just the idea of, of uh, storytelling and, you know, beginning with an idea right there. Not long ago, I got part of an awards show. I don't know if it was the Emmys or the Oscars or I, I don't pay that much attention to them. But the interesting part was they were interviewing people out on the street, on the red carpet, what have you before the program started and they said tell us about this new movie you're in or tell us about this play you're in almost the first thing out of their mouth consistently was it's such a great story yeah. the way the story is told i i love that idea because i don't know if people were so aware of that 20 30 years ago maybe they were but they certainly are hyper aware of it now and that's a good thing but, but I mean, we're storytellers, we're humans, you know, I mean, that we, we've been doing this over fires for millennia, you know, that's, that's what it is. That's what, that's how we describe our world. That's how we describe our politics and our religions. And I mean, it's all, it's all stories, you know, even if you, you know, even if you look at, you know, look at the Bible or something, it's all storytelling. It's all, they're all narratives. The only thing is that we're, making visual narratives but it's it's again it's all about storytelling absolutely well somehow or another you read my mind exactly because uh you talked about storytelling over a fire for millennia and i was getting ready to ask you the question or to point out the fact that you and i both have a love of anthropology and the people that go to your website and or to my website and and look at the images that i will provide for this podcast. So everybody out there on iTunes and Stitcher, uh, be sure you go to Anita's website that I mentioned in the intro. But I love the fact that 
you really have a way of boiling down issues, whether they are political or humorous or gender or sexual orientation, no matter what it is, you seem to boil it down to the base anthropological part of the issue. Do you agree with that or am I I, over romanticizing it? No, that's another huge compliment. Thanks, friend. I mean, yeah, you know, especially when I do illustration work, it really is about distilling something to its basic essence. When I when I'm doing my fine art, I'm I try to be a little bit more ambiguous because with the fine art, I'm just sort of musing about things and I'm I'm sort of putting together images that really do tackle our narratives as humans and you know and they they tackle questions I have about our existence and our behavior and how we relate to other creatures on the planet and how we relate to the planet. So, so there, there are a lot of, you know, there are a lot of ideas floating around. I think what I'll tell you something that I find different about me as I've kind of evolved as a person. Um, I used to be way more politically motivated. Like I, you know, I did a lot of political work. Um, and I just sort of saw that we political, were political. Let me back up on that. Yeah, political yeah. mean Republican versus Democrat, or just yeah. politics versus you know humankind. Yeah, politics. Polit- you know, political. Um, you know what what the politicians were doing, and I was working for. You know, I mean, I was working for Time Magazine, and even Rolling Stone was hiring me to do political subject matter, and. You know, and at at some point, I just sort of thought, this isn't working. I I sort of thought, you know, we're just repeating ourselves. We're repeating our mistakes. And then I started becoming more interested. You mean politically, we keep repeating stupid things that we do as a society? I think so. Yeah, I I think so. Oh, I totally Um, agree. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, we see things happening today that happened in the past and had terrible (laughs) ramifications. You know, I mean, just in, in... in politics. I mean, all you have to do is turn on your TV or read a paper. Or, well, but, let, um, let's say magazine yeah. ABC calls you up. Uh, that sounds like a network. I didn't mean for that. Uh, you know, No Name Magazine calls you up and they want you to do this political satire piece or whatever. Was it their agenda or were you given the choice or was it a neutral? Let's show both parties, you know, being reckless. Uh, um, so how, how did you define what you were supposed to do for the so-called political work? It wasn't that as much as, I mean, I, I feel very, very fortunate that, you know, for, for many years I was given a lot of uh, freedom to do images that I felt that I could stand behind. It, it had more to do with thinking about human nature, about basic human nature and how, you know, and the, and the big quest, the big questions and poli- you know, politics is limited when, when you want to really try to figure out what makes us tick. So, so yeah, so I started becoming much more interested in science and anthropology, as you say. I mean, I, the one burning question that keeps me going is how can we as a species be so brilliant? We can go to space we can 
map the human genome, we are brilliant and we can at the same time treat each other so horribly. There's a massive gap in there that I don't understand. That is sort of very simply at the root of all the different areas that I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I'm, I'm sort of dealing with in, in my fine art, but I'm still, you know, doing, uh, illustration work and I'm still doing political work, but my personal work, the work that I feel, you know, more, most strongly about these days, because I have complete agency, like it's completely, uh, I don't have an art director or an, or an editor telling me what to do. So, uh, it's much more personal. So, so I, you know, at, at this point, I think that I'm, I'm sort of dividing my time between illustration and fine art. I sort I think, of go back and forth. Well, that sounds like a a good um, a good combination, actually. The best of both worlds, maybe. Yeah, no, I I think a lot of people are doing that. Um, when I see young illustrators and they, you know, they want to just do one thing, I think that's kind of a mistake. I actually think it's much more interesting to compartment compartment to, <laughs> to compartmentalize and and do different things because they inform each other in interesting ways too. I think this is the right time for you, especially because the world we live in now is so conducive to asking questions, having conversations. Um, and what I mean by that is if you were a woman in 1550 and you felt like you wanted to be a doctor, number one, I don't know where that thought would come from because you're a woman and you can't be a doctor. It doesn't happen. You can't, you can't even entertain the fact because it's not going to happen. Now, there are no rules for anyone. There are no limitations. I think unless you are in a, in a completely repressed world, and I have to be careful when I say that because a lot of people think the United States is a, an incredibly repress, repressive place right now. But if you're a woman or if you're a person of color, or whoever you are, I think you can find a way to make your way. There's no uh, real restrictions anymore, and I think the whole world is starting to expand. Do you agree with that, or have I gone overboard? I, no, I think things are starting to get better, but I, but I think we're nowhere near where we need to be. True. Um, so, you know, what? actually one series that I'm doing now. And it's interesting that you said about women doctors, but I mean, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a young illustrator, I was pretty much in almost every scenario, the only, the only female. And I, I always In the profession of illustration, you mean? Well, when I was teaching or when I was judging something or when I was, you know, it seemed that there were very few women and, and it kind of, and it's, it's a, you know, th there is no simple answer to it. But um, one of the things, like I'm trying to address that now with one area of my personal work that I'm doing. And one of the things that's always kind of intrigued me is that is that art history, fine art history, is made up almost entirely of men. And, and uh, you know, you can think about Georgia O'Keeffe or Frida Kahlo, but it kind of almost ends there with, you know, and they're just, hundreds of, of men, like if you ask someone on the street, name, you know, a female, it just, it's just not, we're just not there yet. So one thing 
that I thought might be interesting is that uh, I've I've sort of recontextualized and redone uh, very famous iconic paintings in history, except I've done them from the point of view of of uh, me, like the way that I would have done it. So it's like from the point of view of a modern secular woman, and it's very. It's sort of very interesting what happens. I mean, I meant it to be kind of cheeky. I don't, you know, I meant it to be a little bit uh, humorous. But it's sort of interesting what happens. Um, It's interesting to see what happens. And I don't mean for the, you know, the viewer to make any, you know, I mean, it's entirely up to the viewer what what the takeaway is. But it's it's certainly an interesting... uh, um, project that, that I've got, that I've taken on. And it's, uh, it's kind of interesting to see how people react to it. What are the reactions? Um, you know, pretty, pretty positive, I think so far. Um, the, another thing I did is I, I did a little self-published book and in, and sort of, I've taken, um, biographies of some of the famous artists and instead of, he, I've changed the pronoun to she and just to see how it would read. And it's just, you just read this and you think <laughs> there's no way this would ever have happened. It's really a little shock. It's a little shock to the system. But I think that, you know, I think that that art is, I think art can challenge conventions. You know, art can, you know, ask questions and, you know, move things forward. I, I really do. I really think that art can have a, meaningful place in our culture. I, I really do. I don't, I think it's, I think it affects people on a very deep level. I think it's, it has, you know, if you look at some of, you know, some of my favorite artists, I mean, I, I look at their work and it's just, it seems profound to me and it touches me emotionally in a way that, you know, writing about it can't do. It just reaches different parts. So well, when I look at your work, number one, it is beautiful. I hopefully I didn't misspeak a while ago when <laughs> I was downplaying your technique, and that again, that was that was meant to be a compliment because uh, the technique is just so flawless that it's not even there. It it doesn't even become an issue. Well, thank that, you. thank you. That's another <laughs> huge compliment. Thanks, Brent. Well, that that just means it relaxes my mind into the fact that, okay, the drawing is perfected, uh, the technique of, of your watercolors is perfected. So now I don't have to even think about that as a layman or a professional. And I, and I just look at the image and I look at the idea. And then I can start asking myself, what is she trying to say? And that's one of my biggest criticisms about a lot of people is that they look at a piece of artwork through their their own lens, the lens of their life, and they say, well, I don't like that, I don't get it, it's ridiculous, whatever. That's not what I think you're supposed to do. You can have the lens of your life as an influence, but I think you're supposed to look at a piece of artwork and say, what, what is this artist trying to say? What are they trying to make me react to or react with? And that's the first thing I do when I look at one of your paintings, I start asking myself, what is Anita trying to say? <laughs> what is she telling me? She's going to make me smarter. If I, <laughs> not, not at all. If I, I can to, get there. 
you know, I have to tell you, I, I'm not even sure we've ever talked about this. And we're, we're old friends, but I'm not sure we've ever talked about this. So um, another thing about the anthropology, I, I'm not sure I ever told you that. Did I tell you that I, I volunteer with monkeys? I knew that by way of social media. And yes. Okay. So... I mean, I, I use uh, a lot of, I mean, I paint a lot of monkeys and, and in my work. And uh, I, I've, I mean, I've always loved them. I've loved them as metaphors for our own behavior. Um, and I just, but I love the fact that we share so much genetic material with monkeys. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think if we sort of look at it, you know, look at it in those terms, I mean, maybe that explains a lot of our behavior. I don't know that we're, you know, that we're basically great apes. I don't know. But, um, so a friend of mine was, uh, in advertising and she was a producer and she retired and she didn't know what she, what to do next. And her daughter's an anthropologist and, uh, she said, mom, there's a primate sanctuary. They're looking for a buyer. So she bought it. So I, uh, I go, I volunteer with them. We do a lot of fundraising and we have 19 monkeys. Uh, everything from, we had a little marmoset, uh, he passed away and then, uh, all the way up to baboons and just, just being with these extraordinary creatures, it's, it, they're incredible. I mean, one of them just wants to hold hands all day. One of them just looks you in the eye and just chatters all the time. And it's fascinating because it's the beginnings of language. I mean, they're, they're so incredible. They're all rescues. So there's a sort of a very dark story to the whole thing. You know, they're victims of the exotic pet trade. Or we recently uh, ha- have uh, received three lab monkeys who were basically tortured for 10 years. And then usually they're euthanized, but we've given them a nice retirement. So it's just, it's just really, it's just fascinating to, to be around these incredible creatures. Anita, you're in Toronto, Canada. So where is this sanctuary from you? It's uh, an hour and 15 minutes away by car. It's really, really close. It's, uh, it's just an old farm. And the barn has been renovated to accommodate these monkeys. And um, they're, just, they're just amazing. And I have to tell you about one whose name is Pockets Warhol. <laughs> and he's, uh, he's a very Did you name artist. that monkey? Is that well, your influence? I didn't, I didn't name him, but but my friend named him because he's he's a white tufted capuchin, and he's got ah, his see. hair looks just like Warhol's. <laughs> and this monkey. So one of the things that we do with these monkeys is uh, we're very concerned that they're that they don't get bored. So what we do it's called enrichment, and we try to keep them happy and occupied and doing stuff. So. For example, when we feed them, we don't just give them food, we make them work for it. So we put them, you know, we put the food in boxes and, you know, it's like a puzzle for them because in the wild they would have to, you know, they'd have to work for their food. And so we really try to, I mean, there's no way they could ever be put back into the wild, but we try to keep them as happy as possible. And Pockets Warhol, uh, one one of the women who works there thought, I wonder, he's so smart. He's a really smart little guy. And she put a canvas in front of him one day with some children's uh, non-toxic paints. And he he's a painter, so he's, he paints. He's wow. got a Facebook page. You now can see, look him up, Pockets Warhol. See, that's Warhol. interesting because if he, wasn't, if he had never seen anyone do that, all of a sudden you throw out the mimic part of the brain. 
that's really interesting that it went to the creative part or I don't maybe he was building something creating something I'm not sure he's you know it's really you know again it's hard he's a monkey I don't know what he's, what he's thinking it's it's hard to know but he he's he becomes very immersed in moving paint around and he uses his fingers and he just moves paint around it's it's fascinating to watch he, it just it just he becomes really immersed in the process um and he and he just loves doing it. It's amazing. And we actually we have we sell his work, <laughs> and um, we have some you know big. We Ricky Gervais is a is a big supporter, and we have other people who, um, you know, who support the sanctuary who are pretty well known. And we just keep trying to do these fundraisers because there's no government help. It's all volunteer based. So I started the Pockets Warhol Art Collective. And uh, I've been asking friends if they want to donate something to help the monkeys. And we had a we had a massive show last year. We had a hundred uh, paintings and prints, and we sold most of them. And all of it went uh, to help the monkeys to house the monkeys. And I have to tell you something else, Brent. This is so funny. So another thing that I've done with Pockets Warhol is that we've collaborated on paintings. So I will do a painting. And I will give it to him and he will, in quote, <laughs> improve it. So he works on the painting and then I might take it back and work work on it a bit more. And it just, one of the paintings I did with him just got into the three by three annual, which I thought was hysterical. It's oh got to be the first monkey who ever, <laughs> who ever won an illustration award. Well, I noticed that your work got significantly better about a few months ago and uh, I... <laughs> I thought, wow, she really turned a corner. Good for her. Uh, there you go. There you, you and, go. You and Pockets just hanging out. There you go. Well, uh, obviously I'm teasing when I say that. One thing that you did say that made the hair on the back of my neck stand up, you were talking about one of your little buddies that just wants to chatter with you all the time. And then you yeah. said, that's the beginning of language. Oh, the yeah. hair just went up on my neck again. Uh, yeah. That's pretty significant i had never really thought about that so does uh, what kind of what kind of uh, creature is this uh he's a black tufted capuchin so he are they well, known as verbal monkeys or just around people to be honest i, I don't really know i mean uh he is very chatty he uh had a lot of medical issues because he was treated very poorly. Um, but he's, he's really healthy now. And suddenly he's, he just talks all the time. It's incredible. <laughs> I think he just feels, he feels a lot better. So he's just, you know, I wish I knew what he was saying. He just chatters on and on and on. It's incredible, but they're all, you know, they're all different. Like they're not all, you know, there, there are two, uh, lab who were, are lab monkeys who were rescued and they're, they're very, very damaged and they're, they stick to themselves and they, uh, they groom each other, which is amazing because that's the stuff they do in the wild. But it's, it's, uh, they, yeah, they're just, they're too damaged to, uh, to really interact with them. Can the species commingle in this habitat or do you have to keep baboons away from, you know, the marmosets or whatever? I'm making all this up or, or is everybody just in a, a big place together? That's that's actually a really good question, and I was reading yesterday about exactly this. So, we it, it's all about their behavior. Like the three new guys were in four by four by four cages their whole lives, 
isolated. We put them together and they're getting along fine. There were a few little scratches as they established hierarchy, but they're totally, they're doing really, really well. Typically, uh, no, species don't, don't uh, get along very well together. But um, we have a baboon and we have uh, the Ikea monkey. I don't know if you remember Darwin, the Ikea monkey. He was found in an Ikea parking lot wearing a shearling coat. I don't know if you remember that. I mean, he, No, he, what is a shearling coat? A sheepskin coat. He was a little baby. Oh my gosh. Uh, yeah. And so uh, they get along really well. I think uh, Pierre, who is the giant baboon, sees him as like, you know, Darwin is like a teenage, teenager, a teenage boy now. So, so Pierre, the baboon really treats him like, like a son and they get along very well together, even though they're different species. And I was reading yesterday about, uh, something new that happened in the animal world. And that is that, uh, I don't know what, I think it was, uh, uh, a caption monkey. I can't remember showed up with a baby marmoset and, marmosets are tiny and so they were the scientists were speculating that this is you know we know that more animals more monkeys were using tools than we previously thought but could this be actually the first time we've seen a monkey with a pet because it seemed like it was a little pet so wow that's interesting right i know that's really big i remember in national geographic when i was growing up there were images of chimpanzees that would take a long blade of grass, like a, a blade of straw, a strand of straw or something, stick it in a termite hole. The termites would attack that stick and cling to it. The chimpanzee would pull it out and eat all those termites. And yeah. they were thinking that was the first time they witnessed the usage of a tool that was a big debate. That was kind of like Pluto being a planet or not. Chimpanzees right. using grass as a tool. So I right. think probably people are still arguing about that. Uh, and you're telling me, no, they think it goes back and, and has been more prevalent than what we have ever thought before. Yeah, very, very possibly. I mean, there's a, there's a great primatologist named Fran, uh, Franz de Waal. D-E-W-A-A-L, he's Dutch, and he lives in Atlanta, and he he writes all these incredible books about primates, you know, about chimpanzees and and politics, and I mean, it's really, really interesting, and and he, so they they do tests about fairness, and even, even, even monkeys, even primates know when something isn't fair. Like when, when one of the monkeys gets a carrot and the other one gets a grape, you know, they, and they, they get all upset about it. So very, very basic principles that we live by seems to be, seems to spill over into the animal kingdom too. So, I mean, all this kind of stuff is just endlessly um, interesting to me. You love anthropology. We talked about that. You love animals, obviously. Uh, yeah. And that you put all that together and you get these wonderful anthropomorphic things that you do. You've been doing that as long as I can remember. So you're making animals that have human characteristics. Is that a a valid definition of anthropomorphism? Yeah, that, I mean, I, I haven't done that recently, but I, yeah, I certainly started out doing that. And it really, that was just very simply the idea of, of sharing similar genetic material with other species. Um, but, but, um, you know, 
I, I've got to tell you, Brad, when, when people say that they're, they, they can't think of what to paint or they're bored or something, I think there aren't enough hours in the day for me to paint what I want to paint. You know, I mean, they're, they're endless with, with this kind of material, you know, and mixing and matching and exploring. And I mean, there, there, there's, for me, there are endless visuals that come up, you know, so, so, uh, anyway, I, I never have enough time to paint everything I want to paint. Tell us about the image of the woman on all fours crawling, looking directly at the viewer, challenging the viewer. And there's yeah. a there's a baby clinging underneath this woman, like like a chimpanzee baby would do, or possums yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Well, again, it's 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 kind of about the you know about how you know sharing similar genetic material and and also kind of about the ferocity of uh, motherhood i think i had illustrated actually a time cover a long time ago about about uh, different aspects of motherhood and how you know how scientists and anthropolo- anthropologists view motherhood in in the animal kingdom versus in you know different tribes in in, the, in our collective history and you know so it's something it's something i've never had children myself but it's something that certainly uh piqued my curiosity the the thing about the um i mean we're sort of at this point i think trying to figure out you know where were the first uh humans the you know where where at for at what evolutionary branch and I think the I think the painting that you're talking about, the other one, um, it really just kind of has to do with where was it? You know, at what, you know, trying to pinpoint exactly where did the human branch begin? You know, and again, it's not, they're just, they're musings and they're, they're sort of interesting to me. And uh, I'm not, you know, I'm not making any definitive statements by any means. They're, they're just, it's just really curious to me. I'm, I'm sort of exploring, you know, reworking uh, narratives and, uh, yeah. I like the work that you do where you, what's the right word, you refer to certain master works of art history. And one of my favorites, and it's a diptych, meaning two parts to the painting. And you're doing a, a reference to the the great uh, sculpture Peta, where oh, yeah. it, it's the Virgin Mary cradling the dead, lifeless body of Christ, but you painted it as a I believe she was a a nude woman cradling what looks to be the lifeless body of a primate of some sort, and in in the other part of the painting you reversed it. You had the living primate cradling this dead lifeless body of this nude female so what were your what were your thinkings of 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 that particular diptych i'm referring back to a lot of uh uh, iconic paintings um you know for the reasons I, i sort of mentioned earlier but you know a lot of it is kind of homage to like you know as i'm really studying these old paintings. I mean, I love these paintings, you know, they're, they're incredible. But, um, so, but, so I'm taking them, I'm sort of asking the question, what, if this were to be done today by a modern secular woman, how might it look? So taking the Pieta from a religious context to something more secular, how would that look? You know, and again, not making any 
definitive statements, but rather just, uh, you know, re, you know, it's, it's like a remix. Not only are you an exquisite fine art painter and you're in lots of galleries and you've traveled all around the world with your paintings, before that you were an illustrator and you are an incredibly, incredibly decorated as an illustrator, as I mentioned in my introduction. And one of your coup de gras, I think, which you have accomplished many times, was working for the New Yorker magazine. So tell us a little bit about your experiences with the New Yorker magazine. One thing that's really critical uh, if you're an illustrator is to be working for great art directors. I mean, that's, you know, I've been so lucky. I feel incredibly fortunate. I Earlier, I did a lot of work for Rolling Stone magazine, and I worked uh, with Fred Woodward, who's just an extraordinary art director. Um, more recently, I'm, I've done uh, a number of covers for The New Yorker, and I'm working with a wonderful uh, cover editor named Francoise Mouly, and she's an artist in her own right. She's married to Art Spiegelman, and she has such an incredible, um, I mean, she's she's very, she's, you know, again, she's really, really smart. I mean, she loves really, really good ideas. So the, the way that I've been working with The New Yorker is a, a number of different ways. Sometimes she uh, emails a, a few different people, I, I suspect, and says, okay, this just happened. If you have any, any ideas, please send them in. Um, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Um, other times I, you know, again, I'm in the past 20 years, I've done a lot more work that's self-generated. If there's something that I think is appropriate, I, I send a very, very rough sketch in. And if she uh, thinks there's merit to it, then I will, I will develop it, it into a full painting. So the New Yorker covers, I mean, it can be really anything. I mean, they, they're, the topics have to do with New York City or politics, you know, bigger issues like politics, uh, social issues. Um, you know, it can, it can really be anything. So it's wide open. And there are very few, I can't think of another magazine that has an illustrated cover every single issue. I mean, it's just an extraordinary uh, you know, place to showcase illustration, isn't <laughs> I can, it? I, I mean, can, it's crazy. I can think of one, but I don't work for them anymore, so never oh. mind. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so it's, I mean, I've done things for them that are funny. I've done things that are more serious. And it's just, it's just really, really great. I, you know, I love working for her. It's harder and harder to get a cover published because I think as print has become sort of more compromised uh, to the, you know, to the internet, it's, it's just, it's, the field is much more competitive. So I think you have a lot more people uh, competing for the, the same jobs, the same what, sort of fewer jobs. What types of covers did you have published? So I've done a couple uh, for Mother's Day issues. One of them was a, a big, monster baby sort of it's called puppeteer and i and, remember uh, that one yeah the, the mother is uh kind of at her wits end and she's sort of being manipulated by this gigantic delicious chubby baby um and then i did another mother's day cover that that was around the time of 
there were news reports that they had cloned the first human, which uh, I don't think they ever did, but, but uh, hopefully. Anyway, <laughs> That's right you up ne- your alley. You never know. <laughs> yeah. So recount so, the story of the baby cover, because I love that story, and I want you to share that. The, you mean the, the big baby? The big yes, baby. You, because someone sent something in to oh, the publisher. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, the yeah, the big, <laughs> the big monster baby. Um, and like, I and think to the describe baby, it, the baby was the size, you know, it was the size of 10 humans size, towering yeah. over the parents. Yeah. Giant right. baby. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I don't know. 20 times the size of the mother. Anyway. So. Yeah, I mean, it's really, inter- you know, when you're an illustrator and, and you know, millions potentially uh, of people see your work, you know, sometimes you get people writing <clears throat> writing letters. Sometimes people don't like the work. Sometimes people like the work. But in this case, I had a, a letter and uh, from a woman who had a baby who looked exactly like that baby. And she sent along a photograph of this baby. And the and baby that you painted was just an imaginary baby that you constructed with your knowledge of anatomy. And that's just the way you work. Yeah. So it it was just like this little baby. It looked just like the baby. Exactly. (laughs) I know it was really, it was really, really cute. So I, I sent her a print, but, um, but I mean, that's something that has happened other times too. I did a cover called silent night, endless fight. And it was when all the soldiers were going to Afghanistan and they would go for one tour of duty, but then they were—they had to stay for two and three, and they just had these endless tours of duty. Um, and so I did a Christmas card of a soldier looking at a—I did a cover of a Christmas of a uh, soldier looking at a Christmas card, and uh, behind him, I. I drew in the shape of a Christmas tree, but I did it made of the, the you know, when you count out days, like one, two, three, four, and then a, uh, a, a cross over it. So I'm, I'm not making myself clear, but if you, if well, you check out He was out counting cover, by fives. Everybody knows you go one, two, three, four, and then scratch out those four. It becomes five. Then you move on exactly. to the next. 10, exactly. 20, 30, 40, 50. So yeah. all of those scratch marks were in the shape of a Christmas tree on they the wall. Up, exactly. And, and yeah. I love the double entendre because that's the old black and white movie uh, gag about somebody in prison is counting the days they're in prison. So exactly. I, so they, they exactly. felt like they were trapped. Yeah, but but um, so after after that was out, I I kept hearing from people. I, I was getting letters and and um, people were contacting contacting me saying, you know, I mean, it was really some of them were heartbreaking. One woman wrote and said that you know you've drawn my son. This he looks exactly like my son, and it, you know it it kind of gives you chills. And then. I heard from a general who said that's really weird. We used to do that, and we would make shapes from the, from these, uh, you know, scratches on the wall. So that so it's really interesting when you can sort of, you know, touch people like that. It's really you know you really feel uh, privileged to to be able to to move people. Um, the but the the one thing about the New Yorker working for the New Yorker is that it's not. It really is about trying to capture something that's happening at that at that very point in uh, in time. So they're so they're very quick very moving, topical. Quick moving business. You said it better. Very topical. Yep. So very if topical. something yep. happens in a political world a few days later, 
literally, and Time Magazine is even quicker than that, overnight yeah. a lot of times. Yeah. So they have to be on their toes. I can't imagine the stress of your art director friend uh, would go through trying to uh, uh, maneuver through all of the news and information and politics and try to figure out what is the poignant point of that week or month. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes, you know, you know, I think they're, they plan ahead. So, you know, every, every, uh, every year they'll have the, the same, you know, they have similar things. Like there's usually a Halloween issue. There's a back to school issue. There's a summer reading issue. So there, there are things that they plan ahead for, but there are certain things that happen and you, you sort of really have to do them very, very quickly. So they, they have a tendency to use, I think often they use artists who can work very quickly. So you see an artist like Barry Blitt doing these incredible covers. Like I think he can do them in an hour. He's got a style that's very conducive to that. But yeah, a lot of times it is, you know, if something, if something's happening, you know, you better get that sketch in Tuesday so that it's approved and you have the art there by Friday. So it goes to by Thursday. So it goes to the printer Friday. I mean, it's that fast. And then it's on the newsstands on Monday. So it's just fast, fast, fast. And you've done approximately how many covers? For I think the New Yorker. I think it's 20, but I think a, a couple times they didn't end up running on the cover. They ended up running on the inside. And then um, I, I think it actually might be a little more than that, but I need to do a more accurate count. Well, that's a lot. Uh, I, I wonder, you know, who holds the record for the most amount of covers? I think it's Barry Blitt, and I think he's done over 100. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. had no idea. Yeah. Anita, my version of the story of people that call you or write you letters and talk about your work, the, what I liked about your stories is that it was intended to be that way a lot of times. Uh, the, the person that says, oh, my gosh, you drew my son. And the other Army person said, yeah, we used to count the days and make shapes. So that's, that's really good. I was doing a cover that was for a food magazine. And the subject was brown and white eggs. And I took some brown eggs and I took white eggs. And as artists will tell you, you know, you need three different sizes of things to make, make an interesting composition. Well, eggs are all the same shape and size. So you have to group them together to give the illusion of bigger and smaller shapes and sizes and groupings. And I just thought brown eggs and white eggs, that eggs, that's interesting. I'll put them in a wire basket. I put them on this gingham blue checked tablecloth. And I thought, okay, there we go. It's an interesting composition and uh, nice shapes. And I had something shiny. I had something matte and I had something cloth. You know, I was going through this checklist that I always do to try to make it interesting. So the cover's published. So this woman called me and said, oh, what a wonderful cover, the cover with the eggs. It's such a, a poignant illustration about the order of society today. <laughs> and I just kind of, of sat there. Of course it is. <laughs> and I said, thank you. Yes, it is. <laughs> okay. If that's, what, if that's what you like to see in it, then... I'm glad I made you happy. I didn't tell her That's that. That's amazing. I wonder how she. I wonder where she got that from. I it's amazing no how clue. people, uh, you know, how people uh, interpret your work. Sometimes, isn't it? It's amazing. Yeah, uh, people see 
what they want to see, which is fine. Uh, I had yeah. a gallery opening and a guy came up to me and said, man, I love this painting. It, 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 it looks like Ohio. Is this Ohio? And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> I mean, it's not anywhere. It was completely from my imagination, but it's, he thought it can be Ohio. If you want it to be Ohio, it can be Ohio. Right. And an hour later, some lady came up and she goes, I grew up in Delaware, just, <laughs> just like this painting. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, even the, um, you know, sometimes people don't like the work too. And, and, uh, I mean, I think that, that just kind of goes with the territory, especially now people are really divided on their opinions. So, but even if they don't like you know, the work, that's still a reaction. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, and you, you know, you can't make everyone happy. Tell us some of your favorite parts of illustrating and being an illustrator. Well, the, you know, you know, again, I, I was so, I mean, I just wanted to be exactly like my uncle. You know, I wanted the freedom associated with, you know, being able to make art. I mean, I think we all, we all love making art when we're kids. And then at some point we stop, we become self-conscious. But, you know, people like us, we, we just keep going, you know. For me, it's, I love having the, I mean, I'm responsible, of course, like I have to run a small business, you know, my own business, which I was never really good at. Again, that comes with the territory, but, but there's certain things that, that I found to be unexpected. And I, I certainly didn't expect to be able to travel as much as I'm asked to do, which I love, you know, the, this is, I mean, I just sort of th- didn't think that far ahead. I just sort of thought that I want to make pictures. And then I sort of, I, I went with the flow, but just being able to, you know, I think, I think travel is the best education and, and being able to go to different countries and teach and lecture. I just got back last week from India. I've never been to India before. There was a design conference there and just, you know, just sort of immersing yourself in such a different culture. And I mean, I've never seen anything like it. It was it was not what I expected. It was so much more than I expected. And and just meeting people who have completely different backgrounds, it was just really extraordinary. It was an incredible design conference. Um, people from all over the world. And and the the amazing part was that they they made it completely carbon neutral. No, not even carbon carbon neutral. Carbon positive. So that's how, did how they many do that. That's how many trees they planted. That's how ah, you know. Okay. Yeah. You know, so that was incredible. And, um, you know, the, the interesting, you know, I think the, the, the best part is really the travel, you know, I think, you know, illustrators, um, we're sort of a, I think we're kind of a smallish group. So anywhere you go, you know, if I go to LA or, or New York or something there, you know, we're kind of a small enough group that I can call somebody up and, you know, um, and hang out, you know, it's, it's a really, it's a nice little, it's a nice little family of, uh, of artists. I've never really had a nine to five job. I don't think I'm, I'm particularly suited for it. So, you know, I, I, you know, again, I just feel outrageously fortunate. Like I just incredibly fortunate and, and grateful every second that I'm able to continue to do this. I think most of the artists and illustrators that I know are the kind of people that will work 90 hours a week so they don't have to work 40 hours a week for someone else. 
Well, that's that's true. And and when I'm talking to students, I, I say, you know, it, you know, you're going to pull all nighters, you know, you're going to have to really pay your dues, but it's art, you know, and it's it, it shouldn't be work. I mean, it's it's you know, I mean, it's not always easy, but it's it's art. You're making art. You know, you're not working you know, in a, in a factory or, or some kind of a, doing some kind of job that you hate. I mean, this is something that you love. It's not even a job. It's an extension of yourself. And you did work in a factory, Anita. That's correct. <laughs> <And> you did <laughs> hate so it. I know, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, but that may have been the impetus for you to wake up one morning and say, you know, I can't see my, well, you tell me what, what did you, I, why honestly, did you quit? I think everybody should work in a factory for at least a summer just so it, it kickstarts you into trying to figure out what you want to do in life or be a waitress, even worse. I mean, that, that was such a brutal thing oh, to be, you know, to have to sort of serve people and be constantly disrespected and stuff like that. But, you know, if when you... When you have to do something like that, it just really, you just really appreciate when you're finally able to do something that you love doing. You just really appreciate that, that a lot of people are doing what they don't, you know, what they don't want to be doing. And it just, uh, you know, it, it just kind of propels you forward to do something that, that really, really speaks to you and, and make, make decisions about your career that, that are really going to be something that you love to do. What happens on the days when you wake up and you think, Oh boy, I really don't feel like being creative today. Oh boy, what am I going to do? I mean, how do you how do you get yourself motivated so you get into the studio and you produce things? Well, I you know, everybody gets in ruts and there you know, there are times where I just can't stand to look at my work. But you know, if, if it's interesting having been an illustrator, I think anybody who I mean, you have to develop discipline. I mean, you do. And I think uh you know, Milton Glaser, the great designer, talks about that. He he wrote a book and it's called Art is Work. It's just, you know, you you get up and you do it. You know, it's not going to be your best day. You're never you're not going to always have best days. You know, that definitely, reminds me of a great yeah. quote by Woody Allen. Because yeah. Woody Allen said, 90% of life is showing up. Exactly. So That's you just exactly. show up, you go to the studio. Yep. Uh, there's a book written by... I believe his name is Charles Schwartz. The book is called The Magic of Thinking Big, and he talks about motivation in that book quite a bit. And he says, okay. And, of course, he was talking about it in his terms of what he did as a writer, but I'll put it in my terms as a painter or an illustrator, creative, whatever. But he would say, okay, Brent, you don't feel like painting today. All right, we'll go down to the studio and clean your palette. And you just start, you're in the environment, you start yeah. doing something that's kind of brainless. You don't have to worry about it or think about it. And then, okay, well, maybe I'm just going to take these two colors that I've never used together. I'm going to mix those together, see what happens, something, something. Then you get the stimulation, then you get an idea, and then you clean that off. And all of a sudden, you're working. And you just kind of slid into it. And now you've got your juices flowing and you're moving forward. And I have used that subtle trick a million times, I think. And it, yeah. and it works. And you have yeah. to, your body has to do something because your mind will always go to something negative if your body isn't working. 
That's 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 right. I think um, I mean I'm I'm very 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 good at procrastination. You know, if, if it's something I you know you know it's, there's like a little you know temper tantrum inside me at all times pretty much. But but I mean you know I think there's a, there's another quote I think it's Chuck Close who said inspiration is for amateurs. The rest of us just just get up and get to work. And I think and now I, I hope I'm attributing these to the right people, but. Um, the Paula Cher, who is a, a great uh, designer, a, a pentagram partner, talks about play and about how, you know, it's not, you know, I mean, of course it's work and, and we have to do it. But I mean, as as artists, I mean, a lot of amazing stuff comes from just playing, having a good time with it. You know, it, it's not all serious. Some incredible things can come when you're experimenting and and playing and enjoying the process. There's very little written that I've found that's really worthy about creativity and what it is and where it comes from. But every single thing that I've been able to find always has the word play in it. And that is a serious word. And I've had so many people tell me that personally, and you can look it up clinically, and that's a a big deal of it. And our friend Mark English always says that most of what he does is to entertain himself. And I will say that's basically the same thing as a, a sense of play. Absolutely. And he's, he's really a great example of that. I mean, he has, he's come up with all these different, I, I don't want to say styles, but approaches. And, and you can tell that he's constantly experimenting, constantly challenging himself, and a, and a good deal of play. Absolutely. Anita, how full is your trash can in your studio? And the reason I ask that is uh, there's many different approaches, but I finally learned too late in my career that if I started something and it wasn't working, I should have just thrown it away and started over. You know, get that fresh energy. Don't laboriously keep, you know, beating this thing to death. So what's your approach on that type of situation? Well, that's that's absolutely true. I mean, I've I've definitely done that. I mean, you know, one thing went wrong, and I and I kept <laughs> making it worse. No, absolutely. Um, I you know I throw I do throw a lot of stuff away just because you know space issues. You know, I've I've been doing this for many. I've been doing this for forty years. I you know I have a lot of there's a lot of stuff lying around. Sketches I always throw out, and I, I sort of I regret that. Um, I, could, I could have saved a lot more stuff, but, but yeah, a lot, a lot of it, a lot of it goes. I try to, you know, at this point, I just try to keep the, the stuff that's really good. I mean, the, you know, some of the, some of the work, you know, you always try your best. You know, I always try to do, uh, to make, if it's an illustration, I really try to make the art director happy. Um, and if it's me, I, you know, I try to make myself happy, but you know, sometimes it just doesn't work. And sometimes no matter how hard you try, the painting is just not going to work. And I, you know, I have a bunch of those lying around. I think I should probably just have a massive bonfire one day, but, uh, (laughs) (laughs) well, a, perhaps not a final question, but, um, a question about your process of doing these beautiful full sheet watercolors, how do you start those? Do they start in a sketchbook? And how much drawing do you do before you begin the painting? 
I've never really been organized enough to have a sketchbook. I've always just drawn on whatever. So I have little, I have a, a box full of little scraps of paper, paper with sketches all over it. But, but um, it, I have to be more organized when it's an illustration because I, I need to be able to send pretty well done sketches so that the art director and then the editor can see what's happening. So I'm pretty organized about that. But, you know, the, the fine art is, you know, it's kind of, it's anything really. I don't, I, I don't always start with everything figured out. I like to see, to leave some things and, and just kind of see what happens. The, and also the uh, fine art is a lot bigger. I, I'm typically working 30 by 40. So um, there's a lot more room to play again. You know, there's a lot more space to fill because there's, uh, I'm not doing it for a particular purpose. I'm doing it as experiments, you know, as, uh, you know, they're, 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 it's just a lot freer. It's, you know, again, it's kind of different for both uh, disciplines. A difficult question to ask, but where do you get your ideas for some of these really esoteric images of these animals morphed into humans, or perhaps it's the other way around? So do you do you just have these ideas out of the blue, or do you read, or do you do doodles? Where, where do they come from? Because when I look at your paintings, they are... They appear to be amazingly thought out, profound ideas. Well, again, thank you. I mean, it was a lot more difficult when I was younger. I would try things like word association and it was just more difficult. But, you know, the older you get, I think I, I truly think that the more you do something, the more you know, I think we know that our brains are more plastic now than we ever thought. Um, I just think your brain accommodates. And I think once you start doing something, your brain is there to help you do it. I know that sounds really silly, but it's not that difficult for me now to come up with ideas. And I think that, you know, what surprises me is when people think that they're weird <laughs> because they're perfect. <laughs> they're perfectly normal to me. So either, either I need to get myself into therapy or I don't know. But, um, you know, I mean, I th it's just something that the more you do something, the, the easier it becomes. It's very simple. So you're looking to entertain your brain more than anything. Just tickle that little weird thing in your brain that that uh, makes makes you happy about the image. Uh, sure. It's, it's yeah. not common. I, well, how can I put this? Um, your images are are sort of weird sometimes, but that's the beauty of them because you put things together and you do things in a way. And again, this is the way you think. It's the way you see. It's the way you interpret your world around you. That's amazing and fresh, and sometimes. Uh, startling to some people. And well, yeah, you know, you know, th I mean, thanks again. I mean, I, the uh, one thing that I'm asked a lot is why do I do so much nudity? And, and I mean, first of all, throughout history, a lot of the great, you know, most famous paintings are, are of nudes yet, yet these days it seems to be a bit of an issue. And part of it is that, that again, I'm using the human figure as a metaphor often, but the other thing is I don't know how to dress them. Like, what am I supposed to put on them? Jeans? You know, I mean, that I, I, I truly don't know how to dress them sometimes. Do I put on a skirt? Do I, you know, it becomes something different. I think the, 
the illustration work is definitely of a time. I mean, if I look back at the at the illustrations, I mean, it really was a snapshot of something that happened at that time. With my personal work, I'm trying to do something that that is a little more timeless and that addresses a little bit bigger issues. And and so I don't want to pinpoint it down to a particular fashion. Well, you figured out what the Greeks and the Romans figured out because their gods and goddesses were typically nude because they didn't want to label them as a class. In other words, they wanted poor people to worship these gods. They wanted rich people and middle class to worship these gods. So they stripped them of the biggest class-associated decoration we have, and that's our clothing. So, that's so I didn't know that. That's really interesting. So that's, that's what really cool. Uh, the, uh, see, you are as smart as a Roman. You're as smart as Plato, <laughs> the Greek. Um, but that's what you're saying uh, rings true for the past two thousand years of recorded art history, and it makes total sense. And yes, you're right. Uh, I bet when you travel to Europe, the nudity that you display in your images is not an issue as much as it is in North America, perhaps. Yeah, I was uh, uh, when I was showing my work in India. I was really, um, I was, I was really concerned about that. Um, I didn't want, you know, I mean, I'm a, I'm a guest in their country. I don't want to be, you know, uh, offending people. I mean, I, you know, but they were very, very open. It was, I was really, I was a little bit surprised, but it was, uh, yeah, really interesting. Well, I'm glad to hear that. You were an invited uh, guest, so I'm yeah. <laughs> I'm glad they treated you well. And I have run across very few artists that aren't just nice people and very accommodating. And you and I have been fortunate enough to be part of that world for a long time. And I hope it continues that way. I'm sure it will. Yep, absolutely. Anita, thank you for your information and the great stories. And what is, is there a website for your uh, little monkey friends? Oh, uh, this, you mean the sanctuary? Yes, the sanctuary. It's called Storybook Farm Primate Sanctuary. And I think the website is storybookmonkeys.org. Okay, well, and that's something you, that we can get there with that, I bet. Yeah, and and uh, again, if you're on Facebook, check out Pockets Warhol. He's got his own page. Is he the painter? Which one was the painter? He's the painter. Okay. We're talking about art. Yep, he's I, the painter. I think my favorite was you said there was a um, a monkey named Darwin, and that's yeah. just I it just drips with the irony. So I like Dar- that. Yep, Darwin the Ikea monkey. Yeah, <laughs> Anita, I've had so much fun today. Thank you for taking the time and sharing uh, all these great stories and the information. Well, Brent, you're, you're such a dear friend, and it's, it's so nice to talk to you. Um, it's always great to talk to you. So, yeah, it's been fun. Thank you.